0: Isn't it wonderful to have so many musicians with us this morning? Thank you all. Now we'll turn to our first scripture lesson. It is Psalm one on page 463 in the Old Testament of your pew Bibles. Hear now God's word for you and for me. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They're like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Our second text comes from the prophet Micah. Even though in your order for worship it says we'll only be reading 6 through 8, I'm going to begin In verse 1, page A16, if you'd like to follow along in your Pew Bible as I read. If you do have it open, you'll see that the heading says, God challenges Israel. Beginning in verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a beef. The Lord has a controversy with his people, and God will contend with Israel. And God says, O my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember how what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. And the people respond. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before God with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? God has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning. Even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We have come to the final sermon in this series that we have been working through entitled, Human Desire, Divine Intention. We've, we've used the Enneagram, that ancient spiritual tool that our congregation in a very large way has been engaging with uh, for the last couple of years now under the leadership of one of our pastors, Jamie Butcher. But this ancient spiritual tool that helps us reflect on human desire. It helps us understand what motivates us as human beings and what we've talked about over the last couple of months is this notion that, that we can understand who we are as human beings as we look at, in part, look at the desires and motivations we carry in the world. In fact, we said that as we consider these God-designed and, and God-given desires, we, we begin to gain some clarity around what it actually means to be made in the image of God we get a deeper understanding of what it means to bear that image. Well, throughout this series, we've also talked about how our desires, we've talked about how our motivations can become distorted. We've considered how these desires can miss the mark of God's intention, of how they can be malformed, and how we need God's grace and God's voice to speak into our lives to reframe these desires so they may fit the purposes of God for our lives and for the life of the world. And so throughout this series, we have talked about these, these individual desires. We've talked about the desire that we carry to be loved. We've talked about the desire to be valued. we talked about the desire uh, to be authentic, the desire to be competent, the desire to be secure, the desire to be happy, the desire to be self-sufficient, the desire to be at peace. And we conclude this series now focusing on the desire to be good. The human desire, the human motivation that we carry to be good and to do good. Now, the sixth chapter of Micah is, I think, a favorite for folks who really tap into or understand their motivation and desire to be good. The opening lines of, of Micah 6 actually depict a courtroom scene. God does, that was a loose translation, God does have a beef with Israel. There's controversy that God has with Israel. Israel and the courtroom that, that sets the scene is against the backdrop of all of creation. The hills and the mountains will serve as the jury in this dispute. And so God goes first. God makes the case that God has been good, that God has done good by the people of Israel. God, time and time again, rescues the people from bondage, liberates them from the hands of of their enemy, time and time again, God saves the people. Even so, the people are unfaithful. And in verse six, they are convicted by their infidelity and they begin to hold themselves in contempt. It's a moment of clarity for them. And they begin to ask a fundamental question What must we do to make this right? What must we do to end this controversy, to end this beef that God has with us? Literally, it says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? You see, the people are tapping in to their motivation and their desire to be good and to do good. They want to do what's right. And I want to be very clear about this. The goodness that we're talking about here, this notion of of what it means to be good, doesn't mean that, that you should sit over here in the corner, be seen and not heard, be quiet, be a good girl, be a good boy. That's not the kind of goodness we're talking about. The kind of goodness we're talking about here this morning finds a voice. This goodness, this desire to do good, to be good, finds a voice and finds action in our lives. It takes its cue from the prophet Micah, who said, God has told us what is good. God's told us what is good, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. You see, people committed to living the Micah version of the good life. People committed to living the Micah version of the good life. These are principled people. You know them. Perhaps you are one of them. You're a principled person, these are people of integrity. They strive to right wrongs in their own life and in the life of the world. They are disciplined, they're self-controlled, they're mission-driven. They are wise and they are discerning in regards to what action they're going to have to take or what action others are going to have to take in order for the good to be realized. These people show up in the world as hard workers. They get stuff done. They are absolutely reliable, and they are dependable. They continue in small things and in great things to be good and to search out for the good. But just like any desire and motivation, this desire, too, can become distorted. And the distortion that comes with the desire to be good sees that desire begin to be malformed. And it actually turns into a different desire. It turns into a different motivation. The desire to be good begins to turn when it begins to be stressed, when it begins to go into dark places, it begins to turn to the desire to be perfect. No longer does it look like the desire to be good, it looks like the desire to be perfect. You see, there's a difference between the desire to be good and the desire to be perfect. Those who show up in the world with a desire to be good believe that their worth and their value are secure in God's love for them. But, but those who show up with a desire to be perfect believe they have to be good in order to be loved. They have to be good in order to be accepted. Those who show up in the world with a desire to be good show up open-handed, they show up open-hearted, they show up open-minded. But those who show up with a desire to be perfect show up as resentful, they show up as rigid, they show up as inflexible. Those who show up in the world with a desire to be good know that they're just human beings, they recognize their own humanity, they're filled with strengths and weaknesses, but those who show up with a desire for perfection, simply cannot tolerate weakness. They cannot tolerate anything or anyone that does not meet the standards by which they live. Those who show up with a desire to be good show up as conscientious. They show up responsible. They show up disciplined. They show up improvement-oriented. But those who show up with a desire to be perfect show up as critical and judgmental people. Now friends, one of the ways you can tell that your God-given, God-designed desire to be good has mutated. One of the ways you can tell that, that it's become mutated into the desire for perfection is when your inner critic grabs the mic of your life and begins to sing the songs of criticism and judgmentalism. Now when I'm talking about the inner critic here, that grabs the microphone of your life. I'm not talking about your moral compass. I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit quickening your conscience to do what is right, to know what is wrong. That's not what I'm talking about here. The inner critic has a, has a different tune. The inner critic sings a different song, carries a different voice. And, and many of us know exactly in our own life what the inner critic sounds like. Many of us know what it's like to live constantly, daily, with the inner critic. The inner critic reminds us to keep quiet. The inner critic reminds us to keep our place. It constantly warns us of how bad it will be for us and how bad it will be for others if we don't meet the standards that we live by. The crushing burden of trying not to disappoint the voice of the inner critic is an impossible, unrewarding, and non redemptive weight to carry. Virginia Woolf often alluded to uh, the inner critic that was in her head and in the head of many writers of her time when she talked about the ways in which she constantly was fighting against these voices as she was trying to put to pen her ideas and tell stories that open up a new world. One of the inner critics had a name. She called it the angel of the house, and this angel, for her, spoke with a a very gentle female voice. It was constantly trying to keep her in line with Victorian concepts of femininity, that she should not push the standards and the dominant culture of the day, when it came to understanding the female existence and what femininity would be defined by. The woman was to be tame in Victorian culture. The woman was supposed to be soft, was supposed to be quiet. Her existence, said Wolf, was there to placate the man. She also had a voice in her head. It was a male voice. She called this one the spirit of the age. And this male voice, she said, was like a customs officer going through your luggage looking for contraband. Looking for the things that you're not supposed to have a progressive ideal about gender roles, a progressive idea about society, a more inclusive way of understanding the world, constantly saying, no, you can't put this radical idea to paper. The angel of the house and the spirit of the age were continuously with her as she wrote, and these were the voices that Virginia Woolf constantly battled against. Reminds me of, of one of the great characters in Steinbeck's East of Eden, Abra Bacon. Uh, the author introduces Abra as a ten-year-old girl, and, and she's described for us as precocious. She's described as clever and and bright. But later on in the book, as she becomes the romantic interest of a of another main character, Aaron Trast, we start to discover that Abra's home life was void of love and void of care. Her father always wanted a boy, never wanted a girl. In fact, there's references in the story that that she's named Abra because her father wanted a boy and was going to name him Abraham. And he didn't want a girl, named her Abra, and really had nothing to do with her. Her mother, we find out in the story, treated her like a plaything, treated her like a doll, dressing her up, ordering her schedule to fit her needs, not Abra's needs. And so what she begins to do is she plays a role for her parents. She is the perfect daughter. She hides her true feelings. And then what begins to happen is she begins to to play a role for her partner, Aaron, who desperately, we find out, longs for the mother he never had and never knew. He wants Abra to be his mother, to play that mothering role But soon she recognized that Aaron doesn't really actually love her. He loves the idolized image. He loves the mother role that she plays for him. Later in the novel, Abra acknowledges that her whole life has been predicated on keeping her own dreams and her own desires hushed, keeping her personhood at bay so she can be what others want her to be. In other words, to be perfect so that she might be loved and accepted. And in many ways, the voices running in Abra Bacon's head in her life in East of Eden are akin or resonate with the inner critic that is in our hearts and in our minds and constantly in our ear. These voices in her life are a metaphor for the inner critic who demands perfection in order for us to be loved in order for us to be valued, in order for us to be found worthy. The voices that dictated Abra's existence were actually given power by her. We have some role to play in letting the inner critic grab the microphone and sing these songs on the stages of our life. We have some power in the matter, giving over time and space to the inner critic. And when we do that, these voices begin to control how we act, how they suppress our own voice, how we understand our relationships, how we understand our place in the world. In the novel as Abra recognizes her own bondage to the inner critic, her own bondage to these voices, she begins to desire liberation. She wants to be set free from the inner critic, set free from these voices. And and her liberative moment comes through the voice of the Trask family cook and who eventually becomes Abra's uh, surrogate grandfather, Lee, and says one of the most profound, often repeated lines in that book, so often so that, that for those unfamiliar, with the East of Eden, we've heard this line before and may have not known that it comes from this novel. When Lee says to Abra, and now that you do not have to be perfect, you can be good. And now that you do not have to be perfect, you can be good. Here's one of the truths the inner critic does not want us to believe, that we don't have to be perfect in order to be good. Remember Israel during the time of Micah, they're far from perfect. They're unfaithful, they're flawed. And yet they can still be good, they can still do good, they can still do justice even in their imperfection. They can still love kindness even in their flaws. They can still walk humbly with God even though there are cracks in the armor. You can still delight in the law of the Lord, as the psalmist says, when you are imperfect. You don't have to be perfect to be good. And I think what ultimately silences the inner critic, what robs it of time and space in our minds, is the all-encompassing grace and goodness of God. It's God's goodness and grace that accepts us in our weaknesses accepts us in our woundedness, in our imperfections, in our sin, in our less than perfect humanity. And it's God's grace and goodness we believe that liberates us to be good, to do good. Pastor Eugene Peterson once said that all the persons of faith I know are sinners, doubters, uneven performers. That's true for me. Every person of faith, and I'm talking to you, and I'm talking to myself, every person of faith that I know, we're sinners, doubters, uneven performers. Peterson says this, people of faith are secure not because we are sure of ourselves, but because we trust that God is sure of us. If we're really going to pursue good, then we're going to have to make peace with our imperfection. We're going to have to make peace with the gospel truth that God loves us with a steadfast and unwavering covenantal fidelity. We're going to have to make peace with the death of our inner critic. The inner critic is going to have to die. And the voice of Jesus himself, who lives in each and every one of us, is the voice that we must hear, that we must allow, speak into the depths of who we are. We're going to have to make peace, not with the desire to be perfect, but to make peace with the desire to be good, to do good, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God. We don't have to be perfect to be good. We just have to be human. And that's what we are. We're human beings filled with God-given desires and motivations that by grace, by God's grace, may align with God's intentions for our life and for the life of the world. May it be so in us this day for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. And all of God's people say, amen.